Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, and being, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the day of the prophet Elisha. <clears throat> none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So obviously on a special day uh, where we get to celebrate baptism, uh, it has to, uh, we're going to have to kind of work our way somewhat quickly through the passage here. Um, you know, what we've got here is the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, after the temptation in the wilderness with Satan. And, and really, in one sense, verses 14 and 15 are sort of a summary of the first year of Jesus' ministry. Uh, what's going to happen here is Luke is moving forward this, this account of Jesus' return to his own town of Nazareth because he wants, to, he wants it to sort of color how we understand Jesus' ministry here. It's sort of like in John, where John brings forward uh, the cleansing of the temple to very early in the book of John, even though that happens uh, during the week of the, after the triumphal entry. And so uh, what we have here is an account, but first, before he goes into that account, he gives sort of this summary of what's going on here. And so first we learn that 
Like in one sense, we were reminded that Jesus didn't come out of the wilderness deflated or discouraged or in any way defeated. He comes out of the wilderness full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus comes from that trial fully victorious and prepared and now ready to do the work of that, that God has sent him to do. He's gaining a reputation, we're told. There's reports that are going out about him, uh, about both his teaching and about, obviously, uh, the miraculous signs that accompany his teaching. But uh, that's a significant and important way of looking at it, that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of teaching that was accompanied by supporting signs. Jesus, his earthly ministry was a ministry of instruction. He was a rabbi. He preached. Uh, That was the most important thing that Jesus did in his earthly ministry was to teach and prepare God's people for uh, the crucifixion, for his death and resurrection. His, His miracles were performed as evidences that he had the authority to teach the things he was teaching. And we see that explained in in the book of Matthew more, how how people would say about his teaching that they were amazed of his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And then immediately after that, there would be accounts of miraculous healings and, and casting out of demons to prove that he had the authority to say the things that he did. But his ministry was one of teaching and instruction. He we're told in this account that his custom was every Sabbath day to go to the synagogue, whatever synagogue he was near, a synagogue in, in Capernaum or in there are other areas of Galilee. Here we read about him going to a synagogue in Nazareth. He'll do this until he's no longer accepted in the synagogues. But his first place to go every Lord's Day or every Sabbath day was to the synagogue in order to preach and to teach to read Scripture, either from the Torah, the law, or from one of the prophets. And then the fourth thing you see in this intro is that he's being glorified by all. He's being recognized as someone who taught with authority. Now, obviously, it can't mean all, all in the way that we would uh, assume all means, but he's being glorified by a vast majority of people. And, and Luke doesn't even mean that they're all necessarily believing him, but Luke uses this word in order for us to at least grasp that Luke himself has no doubt about the deity of Jesus Christ. Luke says that any honor that he's receiving is the glory that is due only to God himself. But Luke can't mean all because the very next passage, uh, this very next section is really about a group of people who did not recognize who Jesus was or who Jesus is. So he returns to Nazareth, where he was brought up. It's a small village. I guess guess it would be like Falmouth, like where we all talk about how, or Fairy Farm or whatever, like how we all talk about, oh, this this was the childhood home of George Washington. And it's like, it's this, this, thing that's like childhood home. What does that mean? Was he born there? No, we would have said this was his birthplace if he was born there. So Nazareth would have had a sign if they cared to uh, be impressed. They would have had a sign out that said, oh, the childhood home of Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of sinners. And people are like, oh, look at that. And then Nazareth would be on the map again. But they didn't care to do that. 
They knew he was a rabbi. They had heard rumors. They had heard the stories. They had heard things about him. And so they were still excited. I mean, still a hometown hero kind of coming back. And, uh, and you can imagine that, that folks would have been crowding into the synagogue because Jesus, the rabbi from their own town, is, is coming back. And, oh, let's hear what he has to say. And as they're, as they're in there waiting for the service to start, maybe they're even kind of nudging each other or proud of things that they know about Jesus. Or, you know, he and, the, he and his dad uh, built our um, kitchen table. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's a wonderful, yeah, it's a, it's a fine, fine piece of craftsmanship. Oh, well, you know, he built my, my great Aunt Sally's uh, Chester drawers. Yeah, very nice. Mm-hmm. Well, he made our cabinets, and he did it in like six days. And then they were like, what, literally? And they're like, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so Jesus stands up to read the passage. Uh, This was their tradition. You would stand to read the passage. It wasn't uncommon to just have uh, folks who come in uh, to honor them, to ask them if they have a word. You can even see it in the book of Acts where Paul would come in and and folks would say, oh, do you have a a message? Would you like to read a passage? And he would take that honor when, when they would offer it to him. So Jesus stands up. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He kind of flips or turns the scroll until it gets almost to the end, to what we would call Isaiah 61. And he begins to read. And so here is where your outline picks up. Jesus preaches a sermon, a very short-looking sermon, apparently. Uh, They respond to his sermon. He responds to their response. They respond to his response to their response to the sermon. So that's the outline, and I know, it's really just for me. I think it's clever, so I like it. Uh, So here we've got the sermon. Of all the prophecies concerning the Messiah, this is a pretty significant one. The book of Isaiah contains many statements about this, this servant of God that is going to come. It starts in Isaiah 42. This servant is one in whom the Lord delights. And he is going to bring justice, and yet he's going to bring it in such a way that he'll be so gentle that not even a bruised reed would break at his touching. Not even a smoldering wick would go out. That is how gently he will be bringing the justice of Yahweh. In chapter 49, we're told he'll be formed in the womb. So he's not just kind of coming down from the clouds, but he'll be formed in the womb and come and bring back the preserved of Israel. But in chapter 49, we read, but that's almost too small a thing for him to come just for the preserved of Israel. It says that this servant is going to be a light of salvation for the nations, that he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In chapter 52, he brings salvation. He'll be high and lifted up and exalted. He'll bring the salvation of God again to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. And in chapter 53, we learn just how he's going to bring that salvation. In Isaiah 53, we read that he is a suffering servant. That he'll be despised and rejected. So despised, so rejected, we will assume that he has been stricken by God himself. And yet, it will all be at the will of the Lord for the justification and counting as righteous 
the unrighteous, because this servant will bear their iniquities, and with his wounds he will heal them. And so here in chapter 61 of Isaiah, the suffering servant of the Lord is now speaking. He's saying that he has received the Spirit of the Lord God, that he has been anointed by the Lord himself. For what purpose? For what has he been anointed? What is his task? And he says it is to bring good news to the poor, to preach liberty to the captives, to preach recovering of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to preach the year of the Lord's favor. It's interesting that Jesus ends the passage there. Because if you saw in Isaiah 61 in our uh, confession of sin, it's not just the year of the Lord's favor that's mentioned, but the day of God's vengeance. After all, how do you free the oppressed without destroying the oppressors? How do you bring liberty to the captives if you don't defeat the captors? How do you offer any kind of good news to the poor if you're not going to redistribute the wealth of the rich? This is the misunderstanding of the coming of the Messiah that, that God's people had at that time. Even John, the baptizer, uh, he assumed that when the Messiah came, he would be bringing the axe to the root of the tree, that he was coming with vengeance. And here is Jesus quoting even from Isaiah 61 and focusing entirely on the good news of what the servant will bring. Now, I don't know if his entire sermon consisted of just this one sentence or if this sentence is just the opening exhortation, but he rolls up the scroll, he sits back down, because that's what they did, they would sit down, to, to preach. Everyone's looking at him and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is like this is the this is covenant stuff going on here. This is this is how sure you can be of God's promises. Because Jesus doesn't say today this scripture is beginning to be fulfilled. Jesus doesn't say, today you are learning how this scripture will be fulfilled. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled. Jesus' presence means God's promises are sure. This is how certain God's plan of salvation is that if it's begun, you know it will be finished. That's such encouragement for each of us. The way Paul puts it, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If God has begun a work in you, he's not going to stop now. You can be assured. And so no wonder the people spoke well of him in their response. They marvel at him. But that's not the same thing as believing in him or putting your faith in him. There's a lot of people today that speak very well of Jesus and his teachings. 
trouble is they didn't stop at speaking well of him. They started getting a little concerned and even indignant. Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, yeah, he talks pretty, but it is, after all, Joseph's son, right? Now imagine, you have to imagine going all the way back, like you're listening to the book of Luke being read to you for the first time. You're in a crowd, you're hearing it, you know, and they're going through, and they don't have chapters and verses, so it's just being read, and you're hearing, and here are these people, and they're saying, isn't this Joseph's son? By now, you would be sitting in that room, and you would be just on the edge of your seat because you'd want to jump up and say, no, no, it isn't. It isn't Joseph's son. No, it's, that's the son of God. No, I mean, the, 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 the angel announced it before he was even born. This is the son of God. It's been announced by, at his conception. It's been announced by angels when he's born. It's been, it's been, it's been shown in the genealogy. He go all the way back to the son of God. It's been declared by God himself. This is my son. But it's more than the people of Nazareth can get their heads around. I mean, it's one thing to be an odd guy who left town and has made a name for himself. It's another thing to come back and announce that you are the fulfillment of the messianic promises of Scripture. And so Jesus' response to their response, he recognizes their unbelief. He recognizes that their unbelief is only going to grow. That they will be, at least in heart, among those at his crucifixion who will say, he saved others. Can't he save himself? And even before that, there will be such a jealousy in Nazareth. They'll say, well, all these fancy, all these cool things you're doing in Capernaum, why don't you do them here? Jesus makes the observation that no prophet seems to be welcome in his hometown. We kind of all experience things like that, don't we? Like if you come from a family of, of more than one child, uh, there's like, you know, when you go home to visit, you're kind of forced back into the pigeonhole of the role that you played in that family. Like if you're the peacemaker, you go home, you have to be the peacemaker. If you're the goofball, you go home. Like you can be 40 years old and you go home and it's like, oh yeah, you can't, don't listen to him, don't listen to her. Oh yeah, and it's like, there's just no getting over it. I had a pastor, well, my pastor in Raleigh, uh, he was sought after by church planters and by churches planting other churches to come and speak at conferences, to come and encourage church planters, to speak to church plants and just give them words of encouragement and help them and, and coach them along the way. And he'd travel and he would do these things and then he'd come back to Raleigh. But when he came back to Raleigh, in Raleigh, he was just our pastor who seems to travel too much. And like nobody at the church in Raleigh knew that nationally he was sought after for his counsel and his pastoring and his mentoring and his coaching abilities. Jesus looks at two Old Testament examples. He looks at Elijah and Elisha. He says, you know, it wasn't a lack of widows in Israel that drove Elijah to a Gentile widow. It was a lack of faith. And it wasn't a lack of lepers in Israel that drove Elisha to heal not just a Gentile leper, 
but a commander of the enemy army leper. It was a lack of faith. And so then the response to the response to the response to the sermon. The whole synagogue was filled with wrath. They drove him out of the synagogue, drove him to the edge of town, to the hill where they could throw him down and begin the process of stoning him. You, know, you read it and you just, you can't help but feel like, well, well, that escalated quickly. How did it go from fulfilling of the suffering servant Messiah prophecies in chapter 61 of Isaiah to trying to execute Jesus and then his escaping by just walking out untouched? I think there's two things that are possible as to why their wrath was kindled so quickly. And there's probably a combination of the two, really. First of all, that Jesus would suggest that God's people lacked trust in God. Like, we're, we're Israel, for crying out loud. What do you mean we, didn't, we don't have faith? We don't trust God? But I think probably just as bad or probably worse than that, that he would suggest that God would ever choose Gentiles over Israel. That was more than they could take. That God's mercy might go to those who need His mercy rather than simply come to us who really don't need His mercy because we're just fine. Until Jesus walks right through the crowd untouched, apparently unnoticed. I don't know if it's a miraculous thing or if He just slips out, but... Uh, Scripture's clear in other places. In John, we're told that these things happen a couple of times. And they happen in John, he tells us, it's because his hour had not yet come. And it's a reminder that Jesus was always in full control of when he would be handed over for his crucifixion. But we get to the end of this passage and we just see the, the fulfillment not just of chapter 61, but the fulfillment of chapter 53. He, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Or as John says in his opening, he came to his own, but his own would not receive him. Because there's only two responses to Jesus. Either receive and accept him for who he is and be transformed by his grace or despise and reject him and seek to live your life as though he were dead. There's no middle ground. There's nothing between those two. Receive and accept and be transformed, despise and reject and wish he were dead. Would you rather live your life without Jesus would it just be more convenient if this, this, this stuff wasn't true? Or do you recognize that, that He is the one who came to bring sight to the blind, to open your eyes, to set you free? The world offers you a freedom that is pure slavery. Christ comes and offers true freedom to set you free from the captivity of sin and death 
this one who came to usher in the year of the Lord's favor, he does it by bearing the day of the Lord's vengeance. The day of God's vengeance begins the year of the Lord's favor because the servant receives that day of vengeance on himself. God's vengeance poured out not on your enemies, whom you think deserve it so much, not even on you and me who, when we're honest, we recognize that's what we deserve, but God's vengeance poured out onto His own Son, His suffering servant. And the only question then is, are we the ones who despise Him and reject Him? Or will you receive Him? Will you accept the freedom from captivity and bondage? I pray that, that, that you would not reject Jesus because of any familiarity or because He just seems like some upstart to you, but that you would hear His words and His invitation to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the only one who has come to preach good news to us. We have been so broken and captive, captivated by our sin. We are so lost. We are so far too often turning to our own means and ways, thinking that Your salvation is is too confining. God, would You set us free? Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You have come in power to bring us good news and to save us and to free us from captors that are worse than a foreign government but the captor of sin and death. We thank you that we are alive in you. In Jesus' name, amen.